Thank you all so much for joining us and welcome to another Speak of the Devil Presents Third Side Perspectives. It's been quite some time. In fact, I believe that nothing would convince me to return to this particular format, but apparently over 5 million worldwide COVID-19 cases with over 340,000 deaths is that very nothing. And here we are. <laughs> now, it is true that we have experienced pandemics, terrorist attacks, and natural disasters in the past, which have shaken the very core of our identities and societies. In nearly every other case, we've had leaders willing to step up to the plate, give the facts straight to the public, and let us all know that we can and will get through this. As is to say, we had those leaders. More specifically, America, who wasn't always the laughingstock of the world, had those leaders. Not anymore. Now, now, now we are duct taped to a man who is convinced pushing the country over a cliff is the only and final solution to all of her woes. Yeah, this absolute failure of a human actually suggested penetrating light rays, injecting or ingesting household cleaners, and taking drugs that have no effect on the virus the world is afflicted with to actually take care of said virus. Does he suggest this because his political advisors or scientific and medical professionals recommend these actions? No, no. He ignores and attacks them. He will only act out of stupidity and ignorance, never with data and facts behind him. But Americans know that. They knew he was a total joke when they voted for him. And I can't pretend the sacrifices of Americans' sons and daughters are worth it anymore. I can't pretend that Americans aren't some of the most willfully ignorant and self-destructive children the face of the earth has ever witnessed any longer. Rather than educating ourselves on an issue, we boil it down to the three, <laughs> one, two, three, most important points to all Americans. Me, myself, and I. Will the suggestion of, of wearing a face mask benefit society by slowly in, uh, slowing infection rates, even to my own family or myself? Yeah, but who cares? I'm an American. I don't want to wear it. Freedom! Will remaining quarantined help slow the infection rate and allow the society to deal with the virus systematically? Yeah, but who cares? I want to go to the beach. Freedom! Will stocking up on toilet paper help you survive this pandemic? No. But who cares? I want mine. Freedom. Will stocking up on firearms and ammunition protect you when you have never used a firearm before or even know how to properly handle or maintain it? No. But who cares? You ain't getting my TP. Freedom. <laughs> that is the state of America. And it has been, sadly, for much longer than I am comfortable admitting. So as we approach Memorial Day, and we reflect on the sons and daughters this nation has sacrificed, who've lost their lives, who have fucking died, let's stop pretending it was for some shining light on a hill or old glory. Let's finally admit that we don't give a shit about any of that, and we never have. We sacrificed them for Walmart. Gun sales, Amazon Prime, U.S. and Confederate flag speedos, and the wholesale destruction of our environment, governmental norms, personal health, and general safety. This pandemic is what it took 
to finally shake loose my drunken haze of patriotism and realize that America hasn't been worth saving in a long, long time. But because I refuse to give in to this current air of madness, I would like to offer a few words of hope. So, if you can, take the barrel of the firearm away from your head, put down that handful of pills, take a few steps back from the bleach container, and sit down for just one second. Yeah, I admit it. We are in a pretty disastrous place right now. Sometimes, when looking at the full magnitude of it, it becomes difficult to breathe and take any action at all other than binge-washing videos and stuffing your face full of salt, sugar, and fat. But we put ourselves here. Our actions contributed to the painful state we find ourselves in. We are so continually focused on me all the time, we seem to forget that me exists solely because we decided that it should. Because we built a society that can work in harmony, encourage innovation, exploration, and enlightenment from the myths and lies that have kept us slaves from knowledge and growth in our collective past. As we Satanists understand that to truly have total environments, it is up to the society's willingness to allow it, it means that we have to engage with that society, to mold it, to shape it into something that we can individually grow in and find accomplishment in. It is truly tragic that so many of you have suffered financially and more importantly, personally from this pandemic. But if we are anything, it is resilient. We know that with work, true effort and thinking about we just a little will actually benefit our collective me in the end. There is a future on the other side of this that will be as tenuous as it is now, but we can hold the promise of a sustainable environment, a stable society, and a healthier we. And not for some mythical god or collective good, but for the collective me. Let's stop accepting the presented two sides of any argument, political party or social media cause du jour, and try just for once to find an uncomfortable third side that can shine light on the motivations and truths behind the division and use the newly uncovered awareness to guide us into our infinitely more attractive is-to-be's. In an effort to do just that, I'm joined by two wickedly wonderful women. Our first guest is a PhD in clinical psychology. Her clinical practice focuses primarily on autistic adolescents and adults, LGBTQ clients, clients with disabilities, and clinical issues like anxiety, depression, grief and bereavement, and life transitions. Her research focuses on health outcomes for people with disabilities, and she also assists with the First Science IARP research team in studying fandoms and the use of fantasy and positive coping. It's my pleasure to introduce friend of the show, which Dr. Troj. How are you, my dear? I'm feeling bleachy keen. <laughs> Uh, you guys can clearly see that I have uh, some video issues. We are working through that. We're just going to have to deal with it for now. Our next guest is currently a PhD candidate in religion. Her areas of research are Western esotericism, ritual, new religions, and religious and popular culture. She's received multiple scholarships and awards of excellence and is published in peer-reviewed academic journals and books. She's a frequent guest and friend of the show. Allow me to introduce Witch Simney Holt. How are you, my dear? 
I'm screaming into the void daily. How are you? <laughs> I feel, I feel the screams in the void. Yeah. I truly, truly do. Um, so this all started with um, a request to just have a conversation about depression, about this pandemic, about quarantine. Uh, and so that's pretty much the format that we're going to take here. It's going to be very loose. We have tons of notes, but I'd like to keep this as free form and um, organic as possible of a conversation. Before we dive into it, let me quickly give a shout out to everyone here in the chat. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining live. And again, for any of the video issues you're experiencing, I do apologize, but this is life and uh, I'm not in control completely. Uh, Jeremy, great to see you. Glad to see you around, man. It's been a little bit. Clinton, how you doing? Zachary, what's up? Mr. Wicked, how you doing? Brandon, good to see you. Um, dog, what up? Scarlett, how are you? Vic, Behemoth, good to see you. Oma, thanks for joining us. Frank, what's up? It's been a little bit. Jason, how you doing? Uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying to scroll through here really quick. Coca Noir. <laughs> You're here for Simony. I think we all are. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I and, think I know uh, who that is. Even I am. Yeah, see? Uh, how's it going, uh, Greg? If I forgot to mention you guys, I apologize, but there's there's a list here. Oh, Aaron, how you doing, hon? Um, all right, so through the course of this conversation, if you have any... Oh, I'm sorry. We're stuck on uh, just the two lovely ladies. Let me throw some ugly in the mix. Um, for the Aww. sake of the conversation, if you have any questions or comments, throw them up there. Give us your opinions, your thoughts. We're not looking for a consensus... Uh, you know, shaking hands and, and singing kumbaya, we're just looking to have a conversation. And that means that sometimes ideas may be presented that you don't agree with or maybe challenge established ideas that you hold. That's okay. That's healthy. Let's get through it together. Um, so let's do this. Let's talk about this. Uh, Simony, do you want to jump off here with your shouting into the void of darkness? <laughs> How are you handling this quarantine? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, shout out to Coco Noir. <laughs> and... Um, I, uh, so he, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, I have experienced my own, um, depression throughout my life and I've treated it in various ways, you know, mm. uh, get better at making it very effective and managing it. Uh, here's the thing about the pandemic though, is that <laughs> any issue that you do have is put under such immense pressure, yeah. uh, for me at least, and that even the small coping mechanisms that I did have like so I'm a very busy PhD candidate as you mentioned I'm in chapter three of my dissertation uh it's rolling along it's very intense it's a lot of work and I only ever socialized at two places I went to the fucking library all the time almost every evening and I worked out at the gym so I could you know keep my butt fat and um you know flirt with my gym crush Right. But like now, I can't, I don't <laughs> have any of those outlets, and you know I'm trying to stay active at home. But I think like everyone and everyone I speak to, uh, you have these moments, or at least even entire days, of extreme lethargy, and then you wonder, oh shit, am I getting sick? Um, and every time we have groceries delivered, you know, like I wear a mask, and so does my mother, you know, because we live together, which is great and <laughs> also a stressor and uh i think there's all these little things then that it's that that becomes like a powder keg and i think that's what most people are experiencing now and when i when my mother and i have 
gotten into these really tense conversations like oh you make your coffee too fucking loud and she and she calls me a little bitch and um it's really you know some of those adolescent dynamics still exist when you're 40 apparently so it i think it's, it's difficult so that we both then take a pause and be like oh shit this sucks because mm-hmm. neither one of us is able to just do the things that we liked to do you know mm-hmm. like she liked to go to museums and like to garden and go visit her friends and 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 a lot of it is obviously i recognize um giving those things up for me is not even a question and neither is it for her uh, she's 71 you know like i've had some health issues you know we don't quite know where it, she's very healthy but you never know where it puts you in terms of the risk of this very um, unknown effects of this disease yeah. but i think that uh, so I recognize that I want to stay home. I'm not, <laughs> I'm wearing the mask. We've been self-isolating as much as possible. But you can you can do those things and also acknowledge that it's stressful, mm-hmm. that there are days that I've been incredibly depressed. There's been days I felt fear all day, like the whole day just sitting in fear and other days, eh. And I find this oscillation also stressful. So like I, I, I wanted to suggest this because I, for one, um, it's like a tiny little equivalent of actually going out, you know, like it's yeah. a social. <laughs> <laughs> I get to talk with some friends and make some jokes about, um, you know, screaming into the void of existence. Mm-hmm. And right now the void is like, yo, shut the fuck <laughs> It's up. screaming <laughs> back. Yo, when the whole world screams at once, like, you know, like, ah! <laughs> yeah. So I think... Uh, maybe then for me, it also just helps to sort of acknowledge for one, for everyone else, like, yeah, it sucks. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Holy fuck. It sucks. Don't, don't dismiss the fact that there is a collective trauma happening to all of us yeah. right now. And as much as people diminish it, I'm sure that the uh, <laughs> PhD in clinical psychology over there will uh, corroborate that with uh, harder data and better explanations. But <laughs> I want to start the conversation a little bit about yeah. Uh, what that means to then not have your coping mechanisms, not have access to even small things and how that takes its toll on you psychologically and also physically. Mm. Like, why do we feel, you know, why do I feel tired? Sure, there's the overeating, uh, but there's also like the extreme muscle lethargy that mm. <laughs> isn't an imagined thing. We quite literally are feeling the the um, uh, effects of sustained stress. Yeah. Well, I, I want to ask you, Troj, um, to go into that a little bit about um, some of the long-term effects, but I want to also ask you about how you're personally experiencing this quarantine. Um, and I want to kind of twist that question a little bit because we're at a point now where, um, you know, as, as most of the world, it's been a number of months that we've been quarantining. Uh, but in the U.S., there's some states that are opening up. There's some states that are completely open and there's some states that are still on complete lockdown. What effects do you think that has on other people around the world and just other Americans looking at some areas that are completely open and then some, that are, you know, maybe they're experiencing a complete lockdown still? Oh, good question. So uh, first uh, question, uh, 
not yet screaming into the void, uh, <laughs> but it's early days yet, uh, mainly helping others who are screaming into the void. So uh, this has been rough on uh, friends, acquaintances, clients, uh, who are worried about the future, they're concerned about their livelihoods, they're feeling cagey being in quarantine or lockdown, they're feeling frightened about going out, uh, they're concerned about, because uh, I have a lot of friends and clients with health problems and disabilities, so of course there's that additional fear of uh, getting sick because you have risk factors. Hmm. So I've been helping people basically cope with this strange, weird limbo that we're all caught in with a lot of unknowns. Uh, so that's sort of where, where I've been at. I think I'm coping reasonably well because uh, I've always been an introvert and I uh, transitioned my practice to telehealth uh, fairly early in March. So uh, I whittled down clients, said that I was going to be happy to see people through telehealth uh, online platforms and practically everybody has been fine with that and some people have actually preferred that. Mm. Uh, and a few agencies that I contract for that do groups transitioned the groups to Zoom. Uh, happy to report that two of the groups I, I run uh, were the first of their kind to get up and running and to be running consistently on Zoom. So hurrah for all of us <laughs> at, and hurrah for the folks in the group for being flexible and accommodating. So yeah, just taking it uh, day by day, uh, I go out very infrequently. I do grocery pickup. Uh, I have a wonderful gorgeous array of masks so uh, just uh, taking each day at a time and taking walks out in open space where there is typically no one around and uh, doing gardening in the backyard where there is often nobody around or they're 30 feet away and I'm hiding behind a bush which yeah. is my preferred <laughs> mode of operation anyway yeah <laughs> I dig that um Hey, Sim, can I ask you a question? How, are you still under actual official lockdown um, in Canada um, where you are? So just recently, um, uh, so I'm in Quebec and we're actually mm -hmm. in um, the, the epicenter of the infections. We have the highest uh, infection rate and highest death rate, I believe, in oh, my geez. province. Uh, so there's a couple reasons for that. One, it's true. So we have a, um, a higher number of old age homes mm -hmm. and... Uh, the virus swept through them and uh, killed, you know, like a whole bunch of um, the elderly that were staying there. And and there's been some, uh, probably well, there's going to be legal follow-ups for a few of them because the attendance, like there was, um, some people just stopped showing up for work. So then these elderly people were left in their own waste, dying, starving. Uh, it was really, yeah, yeah. So it's a, and I think the, I even think now the military like was called in to help um, uh, with this, that situation. So that's a, a tragic situation that happened in our province. And, um, but even then, um, my neighbors like right now, like all day, like uh, just this weekend, they announced that you could socialize maybe with two or three families together. And they're opening up a few things like the community gardens, which for me is like, yay! I mean, my mother's gonna leave the house for like blocks of time. <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> 
oh my god, what am I gonna do? Like, I'll just, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It'll be silent. It'll be amazing. But um, so I think that, uh, but the, the Canadian response has been measured. It's been following a lot of the health advice. Um, the government is uh, also paying us to stay home. Like, if you've lost your job or you got sick. Um, you apply for uh, a benefit from the federal government and you can get a fund so that you're not, not going homeless or, you know, losing your, not paying your bills. I think they're, it's a strategic move. It's also an economic move, not just for our safety, but also that once uh, provinces open back up, you, you're not like restarting your life. Yeah. Um, they're encouraging businesses that had to let people go to rehire them or even to keep paying them with a government subsidy. So the government is doing everything it can that even though it knows right now everything is kind of on pause to hold it tightly in place. And I have never been more enraged or scared and just, um, you know, uh, concerned for my American friends and the response there. Um, mm. because I don't quite... I mean, I've said this before in various ways, even before the pandemic, but mm. I don't like think most Americans, I don't care what, where you fall on the political spectrum, understand how outsiders view America. And now, yeah. the outsiders are like, are like, well, this is the decline of your empire. The yeah. fascist state is taking over. Yeah. Um, it's a corporate fascism. Um, and it's happened. Like, Trump mm. is, isn't a president. His entire job is to... His, his entire purpose there is to uh, eliminate as many government roadblocks as necessary in order for corporate <laughs> takeover more money and take more money and to and to, they want he wants corporations to dictate policy and he mm -hmm. and to him it's not even just this sort of evil machination it's just sort of it's just sort of like a, an annoying thing because he's a real child and yep. uh, like quite literally in this infantile buffoon way but it, it it's also then tragic for the amount of death. I think your death rate is artificially low, to be honest. Yes. Well, because we don't have adequate testing. Uh, so a lot depends on the ability to uh, test and have reliable testing. So, yeah, I would imagine that the stats are low. And then there are states like Florida that have... Uh, resisted or shut in, have shut down gathering data and there was even a Florida scientist who said that she was being pressured to manipulate data right. so uh, that's the situation that we're faced with is we don't know the landscape and we have uh, leaders and politicians who uh, don't want us to know the landscape and we have pundits who I think don't want us to know the landscape because they thrive on that confusion and paranoia and fear. Mm -hmm. And Adam asked of the inconsistency in, in the approaches. Right. I think the lack of leadership, uh, decisive action, uh, what do we want to call it, uniformity of, of approach and the lack of respect in America for, I think, science expertise and intellectualism is uh, we're, we're seeing the effects of that now because it's sowing more uncertainty and paranoia and fear because people don't know what's right, what's wrong. This state is doing that. The, uh, that state is doing this. Uh, 
the policies don't always make sense to people, so it results in people sometimes taking those policies or protocols less seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, you get the siblings in the back seat saying, well, that state gets to get their hair cut. Why don't we? And so uh, you have to have the sort of conversation of, well, your brother is older and also <laughs> he has, and, and he has a fuck ton of COVID in his state, sweetie. Uh, <laughs> he has a fuck ton of COVID. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's probably the, the biggest problem, um, most people are dealing with. I mean, when, when we look at the communication structure in, and I'm, I'm going to extrapolate this throughout the world, but I only actually have, you know, firsthand experience of, um, America, you know, our media is, is controlled by corporate interests. And so it's constantly focusing on what is going to get the most views and attention and online clicks and notices. And so it's always extremely hyperbolic, um, which in a pandemic, in a normal world environment, right? You can go hang out with your friends, go have a drink at a bar or go dance and, and you can shake loose that constant media attack of danger, 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 be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. In a quarantine, all you can do is turn to streaming services. You don't, you don't have the friends one-on-one -on -one contact, that emotional and physical intimacy that you did before that I believe is so incredibly important to human beings so that all you have is a constant barrage, no matter where you look in social media, uh, in, in news outlets, uh, online, uh, even on YouTube, like we're watching, even my shows that I produce, you know, we're talking about this stuff. And so it's a constant barrage of the same type of information from potentially different perspectives. Um, though I would argue it's all pretty much one singular conversation. And ultimately it's just creating anxiety that develops into fear. And if you already are predisposed, um, uh, chemically or just mentally to having some sort of mental illness or depression, then it is just a constant hammer on the back of your head over and over and over again. So you had started to talk about this. And, um, do you want to extrapolate on that a little bit? Like how has sure. this exacerbated any pre-existing conditions or just in general, the anxiety of the individual? Uh, well, for one, I, I limit my, um, like I live at my absorption of American media. Um, like you guys are way worse. I mean, you've always been way worse, really, uh, in the sense of, <laughs> of, of how the media is presenting <laughs> things, <and> the sensationalist <laughs> aspect, and like the dun 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 kind of like music and graphics. Breaking and, news. Yes, and it's it's all of this the 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 theater of it has always been very much this performance of very dramatic things, and it's not that there aren't journalists you know, doing excellent work for sure. But um, there's also this been real frustration um, uh, from at least academics of, of and some journalists about how, you know, no one has, ch only now do you see reporters challenging Trump on some of his claims because he just stands mm. there and lies. And, I'll, and every time I watch Trudeau, our prime minister, and he gets on uh, the air and he speaks every, almost every single day, to Canadians uh, at 11 a.m. And 
I find it reassuring, even if he just sort of repeats the same kind of things. And every day he'll talk about a new plan of where they're going to invest money and which industries that they're going to do. And and like recently there was a discussion about um, <clears throat> that uh, different businesses and, and corporations could apply, but there was going to be very strict rules and that, that the conditions for the money was that they had to open up their books to make sure that any money that the government gave these large businesses, you know, had to go for the employees, not the executive <laughs> yeah. manager. And and see so this this direct contrast, and I'm sure almost in fact as a reaction to how bailout money in the United States, you know, here's billions of dollars just going to the wealthiest class while people are literally being evicted and going homeless and dying. So mm -hmm. I think that um and, and I'm not an economist or a banker, so in the, the regulations of how that works out um, for these corporations, I have no doubt that there's people who are going to pick it apart. Um, but the reporters, every single day, there's a question period, and they, they nitpick our prime minister every single day for all kinds of things. Oh, well, you gave this benefit, and uh, how come the minimum that you're giving people, it's two grand a month, um, is is more than welfare. So if it says that if two grand a month is what you need at least to survive, yet your disability, your old age pension, and your welfare are all less than that, doesn't that mean that you need to top those up after this pandemic is over? <laughs> because mm. by your calculation, you cannot live on less than that. And they're right. Um, you can't, uh, especially when you live in expensive cities. And um, I know my rent has doubled in the past uh, 10 years, but my salary has not. So, like, you're, <laughs> we're all over the place. But the point for the media was that the reporters, even when I sometimes think their question is nitpicking too much, all I have to do is watch Trump for 30 seconds and be grateful for the fact that our, that our journalists are continually challenging uh, our governments. And they're not always listening, but they're at least forced for some accountability. You know, like um, in recently in Quebec, there was, uh, I think, because uh, he's the prime minister or the, the premier of our province has been asking people to come in to work in the healthcare industry. This is not just as nurses, but certainly nurses and doctors that were retired yeah. uh, or didn't want to work, but also other people to help as orderlies or administration and um, so he's saying we need we need more people for all kinds of different things and we'll train you and we'll pay you and they topped up all the salaries. So there was this all uh, discussion of of well you put that one of the reasons that it, it wiped through uh, some of these health residencies so quickly was because <clears throat> you they put such a strain on people of of individual residencies or individual healthcare centers not hiring someone full-time because it's cheaper to have a whole bunch of part-time workers. Right. So those part-time workers have several jobs. And so if they were, then in the early days, they became a vector and they just infected people all over the place. And instead of, in the, every time there was a discussion about that, the reporters kept saying, isn't then not the job of the province to ensure there's more full-time workers, that you have a permanent position that you're not as stressed out, that you have more money, that you can take breaks, as opposed to, you know, put the blame on these part-time workers who don't really have a choice. And uh, so <laughs> there was um, some reporters saying, well, we have evidence where well, we've heard of people, of managers, you know, cutting them off at 
one hour before their full-time work so they don't have to pay them benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And the premier was forced to say on air, I would like, you know, <clears throat> I would like the names of those managers. I want to talk to those managers because <laughs> I don't think that's right. So it's a small, tiny thing, but to me it was an example of, yes, you have to keep pushing because even if the government says something like that, some asshole manager, and I've worked for many of them, will cut you off right before mm -hmm. because it's their bottom line instead of thinking about overall health, what it means to have employees that are working full-time in a very stressful job. If you're working in healthcare, it's stressful. I did it yeah. for years. I worked as a, in minor care emergencies and a psychiatric clinic for a long time and uh, an ER for a while, which was wild. So your, your job is stressful. And if, you're, if your employer isn't taking care of you, then the turnover is high and the, the, the health of people that come into for care as well as the workers, you know, suffers. So mm -hmm. to me, to me, the idea of of not investing in that or it just is just enraging. Um, so I, I I hope that in Canada at least there's a, a renewed discussion for that kind of thing and how we should compensate healthcare workers, mm -hmm. <laughs> teachers, <Yep. laughs> and uh, jobs like minimum wage of grocery store worker because when you deal with the public a lot it's stressful and people are still assholes even in Canada when we're trying when we're not as much of assholes in the United <laughs> States. like some of these stories coming out of the United States just uh, like, just, security like, guards have been maimed or killed yeah. because people told the security guard told people to wear a mask right. yeah right. like that doesn't really happen in Canada as far as i know it's not that it's not that there aren't people who are uh, kind of angry about it and don't like it, but there's sort of a begrudging, even them, they're kind of begrudging, um, uh, you know, reluctance. And the, the, the front, and we also have people who just don't quite believe that it's as serious as it is or uh, challenge the medical experts. And every single time that happens, my thing is, hey, if you want to get a medical degree, <laughs> a medical degree, I will then listen to you. Mm -hmm. But right. whatever research you find online and think is evidence means nothing to me. You know, I understand what expertise is. I don't speak. I know I'm not a medical doctor, but because I am a doctor or almost a doctor in my own area, I understand what expertise is. Yes. No one, an outsider isn't going to come mansplain religion to me. I wouldn't even listen to that shit. <laughs> so why people think that somehow there's a grand conspiracy <laughs> for people who are putting their lives on the line every single day. I just, it's I just ludicrous. It comes from. I understand where it comes from because even if I, if you study conspiracy theory and you study religion, like you come across a lot of these ideas about where the emotional aspect of what that's feeding into, and part of it is economic, and part of it is a feeling of your own sense of rebellion. Uh, I still find it frustrating. I, yeah. I would much rather. Like if all of the medical doctors in my life <laughs> that I know are like, no, no, legit, uh, stay the fuck home. I'm like, okay, that's, that's good enough. Yeah, for me. yeah, a <laughs> like professional, okay. And yeah. people do, people do not even know how how to gauge expertise because people will say, oh, this person is a doctor, and it's like. Uh, sweetie, they're they're a podiatrist, uh, and they're opining about COVID being caused by uh, the deep state or 5G, or they're conveniently selling their supplement that they've developed. Uh, yeah. 
how how convenient to have developed a special COVID curing supplement at this time. So. Uh, not all doctors are created equal and people uh, typically don't know how to evaluate someone's credentials, uh, I've noticed. Uh, you've also talked about, or we mentioned the media, the other difficult thing is that people are so polarized in terms of the media they consume that uh, for example, Democrats and Republicans have strikingly, disturbingly different perceptions of coronavirus in terms of uh, its qualities, its features, uh, how contagious it is, uh, what you do to uh, prevent contracting it, even what we would think is the basic facts hmm. people disagree upon based, uh, and there's been some interesting research on this, based on the media that people are consuming. And that, of course, makes it harder for everybody to get on board and wear a mask and wash their hands and practice social distancing if some people uh, take it seriously and other people think it's a hoax or they think it's overstated or they heard the first time it's like the flu and that was they, their brain shut off and they never heard anything ever again. Yeah when it's actually much more contagious than the flu. Well, this is... And, it's, and, and, what, and what, what, what stat did you give on the death toll? Uh, oh, man. I, mean, I don't I even so remember, but it was <laughs> astronomical. Yeah, right now we're... We, we passed the flu death toll like uh, uh, two months or, ago. Well, like I don't know. 50,000 people ago, I think you passed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have 5 million worldwide cases and 340,000 confir confirmed deaths. So, I mean, and that was just from what I grabbed this morning. Um, and so, I mean, to be honest, in America, we're over 80,000 alone uh, of those total. Um, and so, yeah, we're doing awesome. <laughs> American exceptionalism in action. We are number one. Yeah. We are number one. I think a lot well, of... And, and, and the more collectivist countries are actually doing better because they have a more unified response and... There may be, uh, and this is the dark side and the light side of there may be, from an American perception, more totalitarian in their approach, but uh, they're at least monitoring the situation. They have a protocol, and we're seeing that in the numbers. Yeah. So you can't just have one person doing one thing and one person doing another because you don't even get herd immunity if, say, some of us decide to get vaccinated and some of us don't and some of us wear masks and some of us don't. And I think I read an interesting article about uh, if, uh, what was it, that if 80% uh, wore masks, it would make uh, a substantial impact. Uh, so again, we're back to herd, uh, herd immunity. Yeah, in, um, in the early days, there was uh, the University of... Uh, one of the Norwegian, in Trondheim, the, the university in Trondheim, in Norway, um, because I, because I uh, went there and did research for six months, I still have liked a lot of these um, Twitter accounts and Facebook pages of the <laughs> while I was there. And uh, they issued a strong suggestion um, in the early days for their international students to return to Norway. And then they wrote, like, in bold, this is especially in places like the United States, which do not have any infrastructure, you know, <laughs> set oh, up. It, it, was a, it was a more intense diss than that. It was gorgeous of, of we didn't have healthcare infrastructure. And I was like, 
guilty as charged. Yeah, but there's nothing. As in, they're saying, look, if you get sick there, you're fucked. Like, you know, like, you know, like, not only that even if you get seen, might you be billed uh, millions of dollars, quite literally, if you were hospitalized for, you know. Uh, also, they might not see you or not treat you. And that's where um, some of the information that I've gotten out of um, academic medical Twitter. So I'm connected to academic Twitter. <laughs> uh, you know, it started with religion uh, and then expands to certain things. And so I started following um, different uh, physicians um, and I can look up their profiles in universities so that I know they're not fake. And uh, some of them also then do, um, you know, hours in a hospital or, or administration. And they began um, early on these things about, look, we would love to give you a test, but the, the federal government, you know, gave us a hundred for this month. And like, they're, you know, all over the place, just saying like, like, or the, the criteria for what the government will approve is so, is so, you know, stringent that even though we write a suspected case, like they don't get a test. So I don't know if those, all these presumed cases are then um, uh, being accounted in the official number, I doubt it. And so, if one ER doctor in New York City says, well, you know what, for every tested case, I sent home five presumed cases, like, I don't know what that means for, you know, the entire country, but I know what it means for New York City in this neighborhood. You know, like, so they're, they're talking about the suppression of data, uh, what it means for them on the front lines in order to treat that kind of thing, to have to send someone home and that you only have, that the, the pain of telling or the frustration of telling someone we're at capacity, I think you should be hospitalized, but I have to tell you to go home and only come back if you have severe breathing problems. But mm -hmm. like knowing that their symptoms were bad enough that it, under any other conditions that they would have been admitted. And I think that's kind of the, those are the, that's the kind of data that later on um, mm -hmm. when uh, Trump gets uh, in part of his trial for crimes against humanity, um, You're will be presented. Right. <laughs> that never happened. If we let we Bush skate, there's no way Trump yeah. is going to see anything. Wouldn't those, hope, I mean, hope like, springs eternal, though. Yeah, I right. know. But like, if like in this theoretical trial that of this administration of how, because at this point, to me, this is this is an act of genocide. <laughs> you know, like of like this is this is what it means to let people die because people only conceive of genocide in terms of going into people's homes and shooting them or taking them out. But no, um, most genocides happen exactly this way. Yep. Um, they create laws and these strident restrictions and policies that deliberately legally disadvantage um, you know, certain groups uh, that deemed a threat or subhuman or not quite as deserving as the rights as everyone else. Mm. So that's, <laughs> that's embedded. The, the structural genocide is happening. Canada did it with, um, you know, First Nations people, and they still do it in many ways. So it's not like a, like Canada's not free for that kind of thing. Uh, we, I don't mean just to blame the United States, but um, our, our premier, there was this, <laughs> there was two, there's a story that circulated. There was two, uh, you know, people from Quebec that at some point during the first few weeks, I think, of the shutdown, we locked down March uh, 13th, 13th, they took a flight 
uh, somewhere up north to one of the uh, native villages. And uh, some of these northern villages are only accessible by plane. Mm -hmm. And so they're thinking, oh, great, we're going to go <laughs> hide out there mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And when they arrived, the village said, get the fuck out yeah. of my <laughs> land. Don't you dare. And like there was this discussion about the, the sheer hubris of that. Like already these communities are very much at risk. And our premier shut down even the roads, and there was um, uh, the Société Québec, like the like a state trooper, I guess, on access to even some of the roads for some of these communities, saying, "Don't come here. These communities are more at risk. Uh, if there's even if there's uh, what they call comorbidities, you know, like mm -hmm. other like yep. tension yep. and you know uh, different types of pre-existing conditions, uh, and also." not as much um, healthcare available. Like if there's not as right. many nurses, doctors, or ventilators for these uh, communities, don't come here, don't um, make it worse. And um, uh, it could, so to me, I'm just imagining like the, that, that entitlement of these people going up north to exploit even further. And say, you don't have access to infrastructure. And suddenly when it's their lives, they think they can go and leech more off of it. And I'm just so glad that they got sent back on a flight, like immediately. They're mm. like, nope, yeah, <laughs> you that's great. <laughs> do not get to stay here. And, um, but still, I think um, uh, when we're talking about uh, what it means to, what the data means, you know, uh, broadly, especially if you're someone who is, learn, you know, learns how to, um, interpret data and think about data that even by the official numbers it's bad but the unofficial numbers to me you know once it's all over all over in two three years like there's a second wave uh, my notion of when we open up states and even now they're opening up Quebec is that most people say well you're just going to have another wave of infections so what they're trying to do and they don't they don't openly say it is like a pressure valve Mm. let's let the people get infected and treat them let's let people get infected and treat them and what they don't say is well we're just hoping to control the rate of infection right they're not actually thinking about bringing the curve down the way they mm. do in New Zealand and New Zealand's an isolated place so obviously yep. um, they have and and um, they have a fantastic prime minister or uh, I think oh yeah she she is phenomenal yeah, so it's it's un it's a unique it's a unique situation uh, that that benefits from their isolation and their culture and their socialism. That it means that you know that they will be not maybe virus free, but at least they have uh, mitigated every single thing that they could do. They did do. Whereas in my province right now, we're like ah shit, like don't let the Americans back in. Like, keep that border <laughs> shut. Wait, wait, do not let us in. We are plague rats. Yes. Like, <laughs> I'm like, if any discussion happens about economy, like opening up to the border, I'm like, yo, don't, don't. <laughs> and, and, and people are turning it into a, an either or uh, when it isn't an either or because... Uh, I mean, the joke I've made is that uh, dead people don't buy shit. I mean, maybe yeah. a coffin and then only once. Uh, 
So people want this to be a binary of either we save the economy or we let people die. So there was a, there's an economist at the University of Chicago named Michael Greenstone, and he did a, an analysis that found that between March 1st and October 1st, uh, social distancing would save about 1.7 million lives, and that would translate to a benefit of around $8 trillion to the economy. Uh, Overall, social distancing could save us $3.6 trillion. So uh, not letting people die and not letting people get sick uh, does help the economy in the long run, but you have to actually be capable of thinking about the long run and look projecting into the future. You're also right about the genocide piece. Uh, there was a discrimination suit filed in Washington state because the triage protocol alleges the suit discriminates against people with disabilities and chronic uh, ailments and even people with autism uh, were concerned don't tell the doctor you have autism because you might get triaged because uh, keeping it real you're seen as less valuable same with the elderly uh, folks with other disabilities and people with we're already seeing uh, in the United States that blacks and Latinos are uh, disproportionately affected largely because uh, it's a it's a socioeconomic thing where they're not able to uh, their work doesn't allow them to socially distance so something like 16 percent of Hispanic workers and 20 percent of black workers are able to work from home uh, according to a Vice article, but 30% of whites and 37% of Asians can work from home. So that makes a substantial difference in who has to be on the front line, say at the grocery store, and who's like me, where we can telecommute. Yeah. And conveniently, that can translate into a kind of genocide, uh, at least... There, there are those who would be uh, quite content to let those populations die, keeping it real. Yeah, well, and I'm... I think they also don't necessarily um, consider it as much of a, um, a violation of their own rights when that happens. So, like, what doesn't really happen to me? So, mm -hmm. you know, like, there's a, a causative, you know, break there where the entitlement of their own safety, you know, even then cushions them from the from the reality and the fear of exposure. You know, like, oh my gosh, I, like they may act outraged, like, oh, I wouldn't want to be a frontline worker, but it's not as if they are in any way um, trying to advocate for better conditions for the frontline worker. This... And it just, boggles, oh, go, uh, it just boggles me that people don't grok the commons where they say, I don't care if I get sick, uh, but they don't get that they could get sick. Uh, Something around 30% of people, you can requote me on that, have minimal to no symptoms. So you could be a typhoid Mary, mm -hmm. uh, visit grandma, pass it on to grandma and kill her. So it's not simply about her, but yeah. people don't rock that. Sorry, Adam. No, no. Uh, you can go now. I'm venting. <laughs> no, I, I, I think um, part of this experience um in the pandemic, uh, in isolation, and also just regionally, nationally, depending on where you are in the world. We're constantly forced with this decision on whether or not we should listen to government or mm -hmm. try to listen to some sort of economic force, you know, corporations or your job. Um, 
never at once considering the individual and the greater implications uh, contained therein. I mean, when you think about the, specifically the American structure of government, corporation and government has always been tied together, but you have entire branches, entire political parties doing their damnedest to deconstruct the government. And when they yep. successfully do that, as you've seen in this pandemic, and we are incapable of dealing with global crises that erupt because of that dismantling, they're still condemning the government. At what it point does the individual? Prophecy. Yeah. At what point do we look beyond? We're we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. We can't see the forest through the trees. Choose your fucking proverb. We are not capable. And and what infuriates me more, and the, I guess the older I get, um, I don't know why it does because it makes no fucking sense not to be infuriated by it. I get so goddamn frustrated when I run across Satanists who claim to be so much better but can't seem to see the distance. All they're looking at is what's the, the two choices right in front of their goddamn nose and they're never once questioning or, or looking beyond. And how as an individual who champions individuality can you back a corporate agenda that is actively suppressing your rights as an individual that the government is supposed to protect while you're actively dismantling said government? It doesn't make any sense at all. And so there's a difference that I think people need to understand. And it, it, it's completely relevant because, you know, you have these mega corporations like um, Amazon, which are abusing the workers, the individuals, um, mm -hmm. actively right now, but it's to the benefit of a larger majority. And so we turn the other cheek. We look the other way. We're okay with it as long as it's not us. But as soon as it becomes us, we go on social media and we roar and we shake our fist to the sky and maybe we'll put out a video. But other than that, nothing really changes. And yet we actively still support political agendas that dismantle government regulations that would then protect the individual worker, yeah. eliminating the problem from beginning. Like we never look at the long fucking game. It's always the short fucking game, the here and now. And when I run across Satanists that are so blinded by the idea of individualism that's contained hardly in Satanism that they can't then look beyond it. I mean, my whole inner monologue was, uh, 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 opening monologue was about that. Looking beyond in order to preserve the self. You have to do that. Otherwise, yeah. you're literally a fucking child. That, and we're supposed to be adults, I thought. I mean, that's the point of herd immunity, of I get vaccinated, you get vaccinated, I wear a mask, you wear a mask, then we're all healthier and better together. Uh, so that extends my longevity and allows me to exercise my rights and you get to do the same, mm. which we cannot do, I repeat uh, from before, if we are dead. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, people, I think, uh, I'm thinking of... Uh, they said it in different ways, but uh, Urmer Haik uh, wrote an article for the Medium and uh, Anand Jiri Haradas uh, said it in a different way on uh, uh, PBS interview show Amanpur. Basically, they both uh, made the same point that Americans think about freedom from, but they don't think about freedom too. And Americans think that freedom too is kind of a suspicious commie thing of uh, you get to have something. Uh, 
Americans often think in terms of I have uh, freedom from the government or from this imposition but they also don't think about the more invisible impositions that you talked about that for example can be introduced by Amazon uh, which can limit your life and your rights and uh, you basically become a corporate slave who has to pee in a bottle if you want to keep your job. I mean, that is not good for individual rights and it doesn't matter who's doing it. It doesn't matter if it's a corporate entity or a government entity, it's still oppression. Mm -hmm. So I think people sometimes have a blind spot for different types of uh, oppression or tyranny and they tend to be more forgiving of one or the other. And even I might have those blind spots occasionally because we can rationalize it, but at least I try to be mindful of the blind spots that I probably have or the biases that I'm operating within. Um, I'd like to yeah. I'd like to offer my perspective as a of how I, I view the phrase American exceptionalism as a concept. So Ooh. so many Americans view it as an innate thing yeah. within bloodlines. Um, it, it's actually a, there's a history to it and it's a very white supremacist history of constructing a notion of whiteness that is ultimately better. And the way that they do that is also then to construct a notion of blackness, which is uh, flawed and terrible and not as nearly as good. Like there's, they go together and it's a, it's not just a rhetoric, it's a, a legal rhetoric. It's how they've They've, you know, people in power in order to justify all kinds of different things. So American exceptionalism emerges out of this thought. It's a very Christian, uh, initially, um, aspect of American history. Oh, well, we, we are Americans. We are imbued with God's divine, you know, uh, power and grace. We own America. Therefore, with this idea... Um, it then enables them to do all kinds of things from slavery to, um, you know, denying or writing criteria for testing and treating uh, COVID positive patients. Like it's a, it's an entire, it's a, it's a ubiquitous notion that very few Americans ever view, at least when I look at it, especially in terms of how it's, how it plays out in a situation like this, that they don't view it as in the same way, like a notion of God. So if we talk about Satanists, and, you know, okay, so we play with the notion of the devil, it's, we're atheists, it's theater, and it's kind of fun. Um, and every time, you know, at least I, as a scholar, has talked about the idea of, of God and divinity, if the majority of Satanists call that delusion, I, as a scholar, have always been the one that'd be like, yo, nope, <laughs> like, it is not, I will never say that, because to me, it's just an idea. It's one idea among billions of points of data about one particular person and delusion to me isn't just this one idea because to me a notion of innate American exceptionalism is just as delusional. It fits the same criteria but it's just one data point of how it informs the people that when they absorb your cultural narratives and how it gets interpreted uh, and played out in mm -hmm. social broad social ways and according to the individual. So to me it's they just like a notion of God, it's also useful. Like if you think of yourself as a strong, vital um, American that wants to be the top of the world, great, what a fantastic idea. Of course, that's amazing. You know, like I, I, I don't mean to say that the ideas aren't powerful, but just like the notion of you being a child of God, I put them in the same functional, yeah. conceptual space. 
And so, and and as as offensive as that might be to some members of the Church of Satan, to me, this is how I view the data. There's there's no there's ideas I respond to, which is not uh, neither God nor American exceptionalism, but I certainly respond to certain rebellion, the rebellious aspect of the satanic or other ideas, right? Like closely related concepts that are attached to cultural narratives, yeah. right? But every time we talk about American exceptionalism. It's not, we cannot talk about it divorced from the broad historical narrative that informs it. So even if with the new atheists and, you know, different types of, of uh, groups that might absorb this notion of American exceptionalism and completely dismiss its, its roots right. uh, in Christianity, to me it's, it's irrelevant because the concept is still playing out functionally the same. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, so it, we, if you want to understand <laughs> how, the, how an idea moves through a culture and a person at various levels, it's best to never consider anything innate. There is no innate American exceptionalism. In fact, statistically, in the past few years, in academia... Um, I think it's more than less that. Unless people want to go there. It's yeah. more expensive. You don't have benefits. You don't have health care. Academics are paid way less in the United States, unless you're at the top tier universities, um, than the average, you know, Canadian salary with a pretty decent union. Like, and I've complained a lot about academia, but even then, <laughs> like, but my pay is better than what some of my colleagues in the states are making. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe that some of these job offers that you would do so many years of school and they would offer you, you know, three grand to teach a course. Like to me, that's just. <laughs> yeah. Same. So um, my uh, ultimate point with thinking about that is that uh, in order to then challenge people on their behavior, you also then have to challenge innate things they think about themselves. So if they innately think that they are somehow, um, you know, uh, immune to any of these other forces, it's very difficult because what you are also asking them to accept is their own fallibility. Mm -hmm. You're asking them to accept their own vulnerability. And I find that um, a very difficult thing to do. You mm -hmm. know, like it's, it's a different type of conversation. You have to, you know, by the time the person on Facebook is presenting me, you know, with conspiracy theory, you know, it's not one conversation to change their mind. That's years of work. They've, they've been building up to this. They've accepted a whole bunch of other things before that. Yep. You've accepted that... Um, you know, women and queers and people of color weren't as good as you, the white man, uh, when you ultimately make a particular claim about how uh, you own America. Like that's, you know, at yeah. what point, and then there's that entire rhetoric of, well, that's not, no longer my job to educate you if you haven't done any kind of self-reflection and like we, I just would like to move on, you know, like mm. I, I wish there was a way for I like the fact that, at least in Canada, there's, there's a notion of, yeah, we don't care if you don't like it. Like, we're going to fine you. Like, if they find you in a park, like, the parks are still closed, it's $1,500. Like, there's your fine. Oh. Like, just, nope. Yep. And uh, because they are trying to mitigate it. And they're, they're saying, yep. Yep. fuck your perceived notion of rights. We don't care. Mm -hmm. I still think because Montreal is, like, a, a very recreational city, we have bike paths and we have parks and... Um, we're, you know, densely populated and people like to be outside a lot, especially in the summer. We have such a brutal, terrible winter. 
that the nice weather comes and we're all itching. Mm -hmm. So I think in order to mitigate that, I don't quite know how that's going to play out. My plan, I mean, I'm writing a dissertation, so it's not that difficult. But like my plan is to stay um, pretty self-isolated until the end of the summer, because as the society opens up, if there's a second wave of infections, um, I'm going to be like, I don't want to be part of that. So. Yeah. I, I'm going to let the red shirts explore the planet first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but here's the, here's the thing: like, I don't. I also don't necessarily think that in times of how we are thinking about depression and coping with these things, that sitting at home in fear is also is very good for us either. Mm. Um, so, but there is there there has to be discussions to be had between. I am immune to all this bullshit. It's all a hoax. Nothing can touch me. I'm a child of God or I'm an American freedom, whatever, yeah. as a, whatever concept of superiority that you latch onto. Um, and, you know, cowering at home, being terrified. You know, like I think there are measures that we can sort of think about. And I, uh, because I worked in healthcare for so long, I, I, I am a little bit, I'm less, I don't know, I'm more comfortable with the idea that if the protocols that put in place are what are basically recommended, you know, I, I know what those look like. Like mm. I've, I've, I've been in minor, you know, minor surgeries, like when they lacerated things and helped maintain the sterilization of like not touching things, like <laughs> and making mm. sure that the physicians, once the gloves are on, that everything that they touched, then they, the wound was sterile. So I, I have a concept of confidence in mm. the safety protocols so if they say masks are pretty good and if everyone wears them like i get it they right, yeah. don't touch your face of course you know what i mean the virus doesn't live that long on your hands but if you touch your face a hundred times in a minute you probably do yeah. <laughs> Fuck. so so i'm uh i i just I am at the point right now where I don't want our, my particular province and um, to relax guidelines too soon and then have a bigger <clears throat> problem. But I knows. And uh, I'm at the point when I view the United States as like viewing it as like a crumbling empire, you know, on fire. Like, so I. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far off. Or underwater. Flaming garbage barge on fire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is this is this you know is this four million deaths at the end of this thing? You know, like by if if the waves just sort of go through the U.S. and there's been no you know informed discussion or protocols, you know, by what you know, and there's been suppression of data and governors that do the craziest, stupidest shit that even our most nutty politicians in Canada would never be able to get away with. Like, there's no... Not, not even Doug Ford? Not even, not even uh, Doug Ford. And here's the thing about Ford in Ontario. He's actually been doing a great job. Like, and he gets on, he gets on camera every day and he looks super sober and he was our version <laughs> of Trump. Like, you know, but like, but he just sort of, he's, uh, he looks overwhelmed, like he's in over his head, like mm. his face, but he's following the experts. So his response is, <laughs> You want me to do that? You want me to get on? Okay. You want us to shut down? Great. You want to? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that even in our most ridiculous kind of buffoon type of, um, you know, political representative is still um, overwhelmed by the death toll. I, my, our biggest, my biggest concern is a, a guy called Sheer, who's the conservative. He's not a buffoon the way 
Ford is. Um, he's, I think, secretly um, fuming that uh, he can't attack, you know, um, the liberals more because <laughs> ah. without without having facing political backlash. So he's attacking like a paying the benefit, you know. He's like, oh, but there's going to be fraud. There's going to be people, you know, taking advantage of this. And the federal response was kind of like, okay, you know, that might happen to some of them, but like, we'll deal with that later. You know, like right now, like right well, now, asshole. Yeah, we're in the shit. <laughs> and man. meanwhile, in the United States, major corporations have filed for small business loans, and so have numerous churches, mm -hmm. uh, sizable churches. So, uh, if we want to talk about uh, exploiting the system, I mean, I think that's a classic example of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, ladies, we are. A little over our hour. Do you guys have time to chat sure. for a little bit longer? Um, yeah, I actually have sure. a question. I actually have a question that came up from, uh, I believe, probably Miss uh, Coco Noir in the, um, <laughs> if that is the person who I think it is, and it probably is, who's just here for me. Hmm. So um, uh, I know this person, and she asked me recently, um, do members of the Church of Satan greet each other with a word, like a name among each other, like, like the way in a Christian church, you might call each other brother or sister. And like, and like, I was stumped. I had never really thought about it, but maybe that's just me because oh, yeah. like, <laughs> if I call everyone freaks and weirdos, it's with the deepest affection. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I immediately went to suck bitches. Suck <laughs> <laughs> so bitches. Yes. Um, I do. I do. Every once in a while, I run across people who send out comments to me, um, referring to me as brother. I don't like this idea because there's this assumed sense of community with that response. And if Satanism says anything to me, it's antithetical to community. And so, even though you're going to run into areas online where you have masses of Satanists gathering. Um, and one can argue whether or not that's creating a perception of community or not, or it's it's acting as a community. Um, the religion in and of itself does not conform to the idea of community. In fact, it it acts in direct opposition to it. And so, no, I don't I don't know of any like meeting, uh, reference title or or greeting. Okay, well, there's wait, that. Wait, wait. <laughs> Everyone knows that that's definitely one of them. But other than that, that's an unspoken. I mean, I... Everyone's well, and I resent being called sister because my preferred pronoun sister. is doctor. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yes. That's actually an excellent point. Like, if, uh, if, if everyone wants to begin addressing me as doctor, <laughs> um, you know, once this degree is conferred. Yeah. Right. But, like, as a collective thing. And, and even the... So, um, I would complicate the idea of community a little bit. It certainly doesn't look like a typical, well, typical, um, what we would imagine to be a typical religious community. Um, but there, it is still a group that um, loose, you know, that, I, that loosely uh, congeals around a particular loose identity, satanic identity. Mm -hmm. So no, I wouldn't call it, I would never say the satanic community because it, it conveys things that are not, it conveys characteristics that do not exist. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did. Uh, I I can't. I have to say I was stumped because I I was like, well, maybe I just 
Maybe I'm just I mean, not. Are we, are, are we a communitas or what do we call ourselves? I've grappled with that. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on which religious theory. I'm less concerned with that. I'm just, I'm less concerned about whether or not to call it a community. I think because it conveys too much of things that it is not, I don't use it. Yeah. But I will use cabal. And I will mm-hmm. use the notion of, well, here are, this, here are these people who are self-identifying with this word. How has how this played out in its various ways? Yeah. Like, like the literature says one thing, but you know, so I just, I just was, I just, and I, and I was like, you know what, maybe we should start like, you know, like some of the, we now let's be honest, we all know, like some of the beloved members that take their dark persona very, very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And which I like, I actually really like it. Like the theater, the commitment, fucking love it. And so, but part of me was thinking, like, yeah, maybe I should just start all my emails with like infernal greetings. <laughs> <laughs> I see that, though. I see that. Salutations from the pit. Yeah. <laughs> Many blessings of the denizens of hell upon you. Oh, that stuff drives me crazy. Um, I, do want to I bring summon this... the void. <laughs> I welcome you into my domain, like the void <laughs> welcomes your fear. I don't know something. Um, I want to bring this a little bit back to uh, the quarantine conversation, if we can. Yeah. Um, we had talked a little bit about how it has affected um, those with mental illness. I mean, there's a fifty percent increase in overdose deaths since COVID had started in. The United States. Um, there's uh, a recent poll of uh, 2,100 adults by NORC at the University of Chicago, which found the majority of Americans have felt anxious, depressed, lonely, or hopeless in at least one of the last seven days uh, during this pandemic. Uh, sales of alcoholic beverages have increased more than 50% early on when the quarantine began. Um, federal agencies and experts warn that a historic wave of mental health problems is approaching depression, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide. Uh, Federal agency hotlines for people in emotional distress register more than 1,000% increase in April alone. So this is affecting us and our lives dramatically, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum or religious spectrum. This is a human reaction to quarantine, and it's going to leave a mark in the same way that the depression left a mark on that generation, I don't know mm-hmm. if the recession had the impact that the depression had on the generational, um, but it certainly in pop culture had a massive impact. And so, um, Troj, do you want to speak to this really quick? Do, do you think that Absolutely. there's going to be a generational effect on this quarantine? I was actually speculating slash joking about that recently. If I said, wow, any kid who's probably been born uh, since the winter, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, uh, is going to grow up in a very weird, different environment. And I was really curious, what is, it, what is the lasting impact going to be on children who grow up in this period? Because uh, you have to typically keep your distance from other people. Uh, other people are framed vaguely as some sort of threat. And the people that you may primarily have contact with are your family. Uh, And I'm just sort of spitballing. So that certainly I could see having an impact on someone long term, uh, positive, negative, and neutral. 
so I'm interested. I'm really interested to see what actually becomes of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right about the uh, impacts. Interestingly, Colorado has seen uh, a drop in suicide, which surprised me. Uh, and that may have to do with some people don't have access to means, and it may have to do with the fact that the quarantines have created a kind of disorientation uh, where what's going on, and now I have to focus on the day-to-day tasks in a different way. So it can actually, in a weird way, become a protective factor because now you're in a novel situation and you've got to map out what you're going to do in that novel situation. So in a way, it can sometimes actually distract you from your angst or your distress related to other things. Mm. It can also exacerbate your pre-existing distress to things. Uh, I previously talked about people struggling with finances, worried about getting sick themselves, loved ones getting sick, worried about uh, their kids getting to go to school, uh, wondering about their futures, feeling grief and sadness over not getting to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm even experiencing some sadness and grief over events I was looking forward to attending this summer that won't happen. Uh, and you've got to keep it real and I think acknowledge that pain within yourself of this is a sad situation. And it is. This is a sad, scary, uncertain, frustrating situation that we're in. Uh, And I think recognizing that a lot of us are in the same boat together. So you are not alone in this. And I've had to tell clients that of you're feeling frightened and distressed and insecure. And you're also feeling like a failure because you're falling behind on your personal goals. Uh, Guess what? Uh, millions of people right now feel similar to you. So in a sense, you're united invisibly to those people. And I don't know if that provides much solace. It's a hard dilemma because some people have been trying to turn, uh, again, uh, mental uh, health issues and uh, opening up into, again, sort of a binary of we've got to open up to uh, ameliorate these mental health issues. Uh, and again, that's sort of a false binary that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you don't and either way we're putting people at risk. Mm. So I really wish that we wouldn't reduce that to a binary of either people kill themselves or they drink or they get more depressed or they get more isolated or we open up uh, I wish we could find the third way, or the the third side, the middle path, a creative alternative that takes into account the mental health impacts of of quarantine and lockdown and isolation, but also doesn't just throw people back into the fray, especially when uh, I resent that binary being set up strictly by people who just want to open up because they want to open up because they in a way, worship the economy Mm. at the risk of sounding like an asshole, or they want to get their hair cut, or they want to go back to work themselves, which is a legit need in itself, but can we be more creative about that? Yeah, Uh, yeah, there's a a failure of imagination to conceive of of a system that's not the one that's currently in place. And I think that, you know, broadly, um, when, whenever I've now increasingly, you know, critiqued capitalism, 
I mean, it always gets interpreted as this, like, don't you want to make money? It's like, go fuck yourself. You have a failure, <laughs> of, a failure of imagination. Like, I don't know what another system looks like. That's what I'm asking us all to consider. You know, like, I'm not saying that one system is better than the other. I, I just know that right now I'm grateful to be in, in Canada. But I can tell you that one of the long-term effects of this virus in academia is the, the job market before was already tight and now it's a dumpster fire. Mm -hmm. Like there are, like they um, massively, um, because they know that enrollment is going to decrease and uh, in Canada, all universities will be online um, in the fall, but in the United States, they're hemming and hawing. And um, I don't know if you saw the news story about different presidents of mostly top tier universities um, uh, lobbying Pence to create a law to make them um, uh, free of lawsuits uh, if mm. their students die. So if they open back up and their students die, they don't want to be sued. And right. just the very question itself, the very question itself, like the, if you're a university president and technically your job is like education, they'll be like, mm, but I, it's really not at that point. You cannot call yourself an educator if, if that is the decision you're trying to make. So, so I, my... My uh, primary concern right now in terms of my personal plans is, well, then, if academia before my chances were tight, even the fact that I, I have the qualifications, I'm already considered an expert, I am published, <laughs> I have presented at conferences, like I've done, I've jumped through all the hoops. And what would be, even before the pandemic, what would have been required of me is more sacrifice more precarity in the hopes maybe getting stable work that compensated fairly uh, I was already on the fence about it's like oh I just don't see it everyone tells me you know that guy that I that I should go for it I'm like but everyone who tells me that is a tenured professor and no one is giving me cash to do that so I <laughs> so, but now even um, tenured professors are losing their jobs or their positions are, are switched to terminal degrees as in like, oh, you signed a contract with us that you had a job for life, whatever that means. Um, but we're actually now making it, you only have a job for another year or, or they're furloughing or they're, uh, and all the adjuncts, they're just not, I, massively, uh, there's going to be problems in job loss. And there is, if there were a few tiny positions available, they will disappear. They are with, mm. withdrawing. And there was even uh, a whole bunch of, uh, because I'm connected to academic Twitter, it was surreal to watch um, in March and April, all the announcements for people who had gotten accepted into PhD programs and their excitement, like, oh my God. And I'm like, I, you know, and I would like it because it would come up in my feed, you know, like some stranger. I may be the thousands person to like it, but I just thought, oh, I get that excitement. And then all, all kinds of other uh, announcements of, oh, I'm leaving academia for good now. Um, my job offer was rescinded. I got oh. fired. So administrations are not being held accountable mm -hmm. for the terrible job market that they create because they make more money exploiting contingent faculty and workers because they can pay them less and all kinds of things. So, so to me, there's this, oh, it was shitty before, maybe my energies are best suited uh, into a reinvention of myself someplace else. That becomes a... <laughs> That's a that tough conversation a, to have. Yeah, and it's a conversation a lot of academics are having. It's mm -hmm. a conversation that um, I've been having with myself for a long time. 
But as one of the many, many, many problems in, that, in academia, you know, I've been trained very specifically for a job that no longer exists. And uh, even though I have confidence in myself as a, a person of talent and intelligence and in creativity, uh, translating that to another field in a pivot or convincing other people to work with me is the main challenge, you know, because mm. I, I don't have to convince an academic necessarily, you know, we, there's, a, there's a lot of things that they automatically know if they looked at my CV, but like an average job would look at my CV and be like, what the fuck is all this Satan shit? And like, <laughs> no, 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 I'm actually, look, I can, I can analyze, <laughs> look, look, me and data and narrative. I don't have to wear the horns. I can take them off. <laughs> Exactly. Trust, trust me, I, <laughs> I'm, really I'm a nice person. Yeah, I'm super smart. you really creative. I just, I just need an opportunity yeah. to compete. And I think that's the thing where no one in academia right now is saying uh, that academia is shit because uh, they don't like it. It's mm. they're saying you eliminated even our chances to compete fairly. Yeah. And then told us we were snowflakes and losers and didn't work hard enough. We've all you, worked you, extremely you hard. blamed the victim. Yes, we've mm -hmm. all worked extremely hard for years and made so many sacrifices. And that that investment, you know, is now being the, the carrot is now even dangled, you know, even further. And that's the point where I say, mm, no, if I don't get to bite the carrot, like after after I get this degree, I'm not into it. I'm gonna go find another fucking carrot. Is my is my boundary. But broadly, when we talk about the effects of the pandemic, other industries are also affect you know affected in the same way. Like mm -hmm. what will happen when a new world where social distancing, distance, physical distancing, becomes more or less the norm? Like how yes. will we all adjust, you know, will I ever get to go back to the gym? You know, like I, I miss the weights because it made me feel good. It was good for my mental health. Like I, I, I started to go there to try to heal myself from major depression and thyroid disease. Like it was so therapeutic for me to put my head down and just sweat at the gym. And I, I, I personally would have to weigh the risk of if they opened up a gym, would it be worth it? You know, right. <laughs> like, like, I, it's, a, it's a decision because it was so good for me. And I think a lot of people are making that decision, even if you understand the risks, that small things come to mean so much mm. for some of us dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, dealing with, you know, other aspects that, that maybe it becomes something that you, that you try to do, you know, like, a, so I, I don't quite know where all this will land. And I think as, um, uh, uh, Charge you use the word limbo in uh, in religious studies. We would use the liminality, like um, which comes yeah. which comes from the word limen, which is like the step, uh, which is the piece of stone in a doorway. So when you're standing yep. on the limen uh, in the doorway, you're neither in, you're neither out, and we don't know what the, this new society. So I never had a hymen. You're saying hymen <laughs> or limen? Did I misunderstand? Anyway. Okay, I'm sorry. Was my misunderstanding. I'm sorry. <laughs> And, and, a, and a, a, lim, a liminal hymen would be even harder to find. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I bet you there's a whole Let's see Marchia and Eliana write about that. Yeah, because the whole discourse on queer theory and feminist studies on that phrase alone, <laughs> I am sure. Uh, I, I think this, the liminal stage, as you said, is, 
in one way, when I'm when I'm having a better day and I'm working on my thesis and I recognize that I have good ideas, like I recognize that, like, oh, I <laughs> shit, not for nothing, all this education. Like, look how look I can put these I can put these ideas together quickly, succinctly, and I understand what it means. I can see it in the broader picture. Uh, other days, um, it's the gears turn more slowly. There's a lot more effort. Um, there is a whole notion of, oh, did I waste my entire life doing this? Like, <laughs> is it, uh, and no. I weigh these two, these two things. So there's a, I think most of us now are weighing the personal effects with the broad yeah. effects and that, yep. that, that liminal sense of, well, we don't quite know and that uncertainty uh, increases anxiety even for the most, you know, stable person that doesn't quite, you know, experience that type of thing, um, uh, I think is difficult. And we're, and yeah, we're having that conversation in Canada too about mental health. Mm. Uh, but I, one of the reasons that I was glad we could do this is because for me, it's also helpful to acknowledge uh, to other people, look, yes, yes, when you, when you spend an entire three days in bed, and you binge watch a show, even though I have lots of work to do, but because I could not, I just could not open my book. I just was like, if I open my book, I'm going to burst into tears and I'm just going to mm -hmm. feel absolutely worthless and this is pointless. And I thought, okay, if I'm at that point where I'm trying to cry through reading my textbook and making mm -hmm. notes like with tears, at that point, you know, academia doesn't get that much of my sanity. It's already taken some, but it doesn't get. <laughs> I'm reserving this piece. <laughs> yes, and, and and healthcare has has a similar problem to yeah. what you've described. Uh, I mean, the other day a colleague was saying I that that they were being forced to attend a mandatory Zoom seminar on self care, and they were bitter about the irony of someone lecturing them about self care when they have to bill a certain number of hours every day and see a certain number of clients in order to get their paycheck and meet their quota. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of you're, you're putting me in an untenable situation, which is what you were talking about, and now we're holding you accountable uh, for making sure you don't burn out. And it's almost like, uh, hey cows, keep those teats nice and supple so you'll be a good <laughs> milker. Uh, and then they frame it as being for, for your benefit. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway, so I'm sorry sucks. I interrupted you. Uh, no, I was about to say everything sucks. Um, <laughs> I was up to you guys. Um, you know, Adam, Adam, how are you? Do you have coping mechanisms? I'm curious if you have a particular. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it mostly involves laying in bed and hating myself, <laughs> but there's a fair amount of drinking involved as well. So I mm. try to balance the two. Um, yep. No, honestly, like today, um, the majority of the day, I had literally nothing to do and I could do anything I want because, you know, I work from home during the week. I'm not tethered to my computer for my work. And so I could literally go do anything and I didn't do anything but lay in bed because I just didn't feel good. I didn't feel, I, I was just really kind of down. And so yep. what makes me, what helps me as an individual, um, as someone who, um, <laughs> I'm going to say the word identifies as a Satanist, um, someone who produces satanic content on a regular basis. What helps me is understanding that as a Satanist, we see ourselves no better, sometimes worse than those who walk on all fours, yada, yada, yada. We see ourselves 
as one of the rest of the animals that dominate this planet. But there's a physiological reality behind that in that we share DNA with literally every form of life on this planet. Um, you betcha. We are literally connected through to everything on this earth. And so when I hear that other people are suffering in similar ways to me, it helps me feel that what I'm experiencing is not just isolated to me. And that if other people are feeling it, then maybe I can cope with it in similar ways that they are coping with it. And it always Correct. has driven me crazy with this idea that Satanists sometimes run off the rails with that we are exceptional, we are different, we are the highest you know, embodiment of human life. We try our damnedest to separate ourselves from all other humanity while at the same time claiming to be no better than animals. Well, which is it? You don't get both. It's either one or the other. What makes us exceptional is our ability to be able to, Simony, your point, pivot when we realize yes. we are in a position where it's just not untenable anymore. I have to make tough life choices based on the realities of the world that I'm living in right now. We don't live in this fantasy world of saying, I want it to be this way, and so I'm going to continue acting as if it were. We take reality on its terms and say, okay, this is the reality of the time. How am I best going to maneuver through it? And one of the, I think personally, the, the greatest strengths of Satanism as a religion is that it doesn't say, because you identify with this, you are de facto the best possible version of humanity. It says, because you yeah. identify as this religion, you better fucking earn it. Identify yep. those failures within yourself and work on them. You're not a master. You have to become a master. You have to set those goals and, and strive and work. And that's in the face of everything that you have absolutely no control over. There's the chaos of the universe. There's the chemical makeup of your personal genetics. There's the reality of the region that you just happen to be born into. You have no control out of any of this, but the Satanist accepts that. Those are mm -hmm. cards that he cannot or she cannot deal with. And so we only deal with what we can. We focus on what we can alter and change instead of falling into this utter despair. Now, I definitely have my fair share of pity parties. And sure. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think it's important because that's part of the human experience. We have to stop saying because I'm exceptional, it means I don't experience fear or depression or anxiety or sadness. No, those are integral parts of what it means to be a human. And if you're going to claim to be the highest embodiment of human life, you better goddamn well accept everything that comes with that. All of your failures, mm -hmm. as well as all of your... Um, uh, I, I view the suppression of the... of uh, if, if within satanic literature there's an idea of um, suppressing your natural um, sexual orientation or gender identity that causes um, uh, problems. Like, don't suppress it. Um, we're carnal beings, you know. Have adult, you know, have a consent with all adults and great, do whatever you want. But, uh, so that's sort of embedded in it, but there is very little discussion, as you mentioned, as the idea of, well, so is suppression of, of your failures. If I keep you know, uh, if I keep telling myself, <laughs> you know, for, uh, oh, I'm not, it's, I'm just having a pity party, you know, like, a, and then beating myself up for that, instead of acknowledging, oh, you know what, um, maybe, you know, these bouts of depression I've had my entire life, which have impeded me professionally and personally and sexually, like in all kinds yeah, of ways, yeah. 
like maybe then the advice of a professional is something that I would seek out. And so instead of suppressing it, you know, and, and, and dismissing it as, oh, I'm just feeling sad or I'm just, you know, or which I used to do years before I went into therapy, you, you know, years ago, I would feel like I was a failure. And I'd be like, right. oh, like, I shouldn't feel depressed about this thing, this thing. It's not that big of a deal. And, you know, uh, ha being honest with yourself and, you know, psychotherapy helps you organize the anxiety of, of where your life is. Like, oh, well, no, it's mm -hmm. actually not that big. It's not that big of a deal, actually, but not for the reasons you think. You know, it's also natural to feel X way. It's mm -hmm. also a very human response, given your particular experience. Um, so it helps you reframe those experiences. Not that I don't feel those emotions, but when I do, I do not start that loop of, I know, like degrading myself. Like I, like that mm. just, that, that's not part of my makeup anymore so much. Academia is trying its damnedest, but yeah. <laughs> <I> am, <laughs> I've been resisting so far, but it's, it's difficult in the in a in in terms of how you go about your life. There's also this acceptance of like, oh, I am never going to be that person the way I know some people who just generally always kind of have an outlook on life that is very different than mine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I mean that broadly, and I don't just mean happy because I've I've experienced joy all the time, um, but I'm also deeply introspective far more introverted than I ever allowed myself to admit <laughs> and quite um, I have a rich interior fantasy life that that to me then becomes part of how I also imagine my depression like the fantasies I have and the scenarios I think about it's a way to process my life and a way to process yeah. these. so yeah. I, I I've begun to view my emotions as fascinating things about myself like oh shit um when i'm when this past year because it's the last year of my degree when things are we're getting really 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 difficult like the the tension and uh i was living in my anxiety like this and like at some point i just had to go to my doctor and i said you know like every single day this is this is how i'm seeing my world like fear concern work you know like stress and uh, she's like, okay. And then she took out her little white prescription pad and gave me a low-dose antidepressant. And she said, try this. And within like two weeks, this went to this. And I'm amazed, I'm amazed <laughs> at how chemically, how easy that was. Mm -hmm. Like, oh shit, you mean I don't have to wake up every single day already feeling tense and live yeah. my entire day in such anxiety and tension <laughs> that I react to things bizarrely where that other people would be like, what the fuck is she? What? I don't, I don't know what's happening with that one, but we're just gonna, I'm just gonna leave her alone. <laughs> you know? But people, people assume that the way they are is the way that things have to be. Uh, and there's, and they get, uh, resigned to the way things are. So kudos for actually voicing that to your doctor. Uh, I think that was super important because that's how you get help. Yeah. Uh, I, I have reactions to, to things that you've said thus far. We've talked about the pivoting. So there's the uh, tired cliche about how the Chinese uh, the, the Chinese word for opportunity and crisis is basically the same. Right. Uh, so within crisis is opportunity. So 
with clients, I'm having to walk this tightrope with them of let's grieve, process, get angry, uh, express fear. Uh, I think anxiety of the unknown is one of the scariest emotions to have to process. Uh, we get stuck in our shitty patterns because we say, at least sitting here in shit swamp, which I have mapped out, <laughs> I know the, the I know the landscape of shit land. I don't know what's worst, out in the woods. It worst amusement worse. park ever. <laughs> <laughs> Worse that, yeah, uh, I mean, do we want to go to Trump University or shitland? I mean, it's a toss-up. Uh, but people will spend uh, years or even an entire lifetime in the shit swamp because they're so afraid of what could be out uh, in the woods. It could be better, it could be worse, but it's change, and change is scary. So uh, a huge thing is coming to terms with change and the unknown, mm -hmm. and that's what we're facing right now. And it will require us a, uh, a lot of us to pivot. So I've been telling clients, okay, get let's process your emotions, let's get them out, uh, make sense of them, chew, chew on them, and then figure out what we're going to do next with what we know about what the future might hold. So you got furloughed or you got fired. Uh, let's process that grief and anger and then figure out what does the job landscape possibly look like? What are your skills and interests? And so how do we then bridge those two things to develop something new uh, that you can do that will be in demand and that will maybe even get, hopefully give you meaning and enjoyment in your life? Ideally, uh, or at least in a pinch, let's just get you something so you can have a paycheck. And I think we're all going to be faced with that pivot. But there's great opportunity in it. Uh, for example, so people have been saying uh, since this whole thing started, oh, isn't it nice that now we're doing all the telework and tele-education and, and uh, tele-whatever uh, that would have been lovely for people with disabilities and people who can't get out of the house. Uh, who were told, oh, it, it's too onerous, uh, we can't possibly accommodate you in that way, uh, clutch forehead. But then suddenly when all of the normies needed it, it suddenly became attainable. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'm hoping is that we hold on to some of the uh, tele-interventions uh, and platforms that we've developed at this time uh, because they will continue to be of immense use to people with disabilities, uh, people in poverty, people who uh, can't or don't want to commute great distances, whatever. I mean, I've, I have clients who have to decide between do I uh, want a therapy session or do I want to buy gas? Uh, that is a shitty dilemma to have to be in. Yeah. And so switching to telehealth has been a, a, a lifesaver for those clients, for example. So I hope we hang on to that. It's been pointed out that Americans are uh, having uh, lockdown uh, protests uh, so they can go back to work, and people around the world have said, well, why aren't Americans protesting for UBI or uh, <laughs> unemployment or better health care or uh, health care for all? Uh, one tweet I came across said, oh, Americans are so house-trained uh, that they're asking to go back to work and possibly die when they could be uh, actually putting their foot down and say, god damn it, uh, 
this has exposed a lot of cracks in the system, and I demand that we resolve or address these cracks in the system so that I can live, so I don't have to pick between food and health care. Yeah. Uh, I don't end up with a $36,000 bill because I went to the hospital for coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Sim's uh, going to appreciate this, is that the uh, Greek word for uh, uh, Apocalypse basically means unveiling or revealing. Mm-hmm. So this is a, an apocalypse in the sense that we are seeing the cracks in our present system. So the question is, are we going to step up and confront them to create something better, or are we going to uh, stick cock in them, uh, phrasing? Uh, I mean, I was going to offer. <laughs> and pretend they're not there, and then when the next crisis hits, it'll be the same as the old crisis because we didn't learn. Yeah. This is a great learning opportunity if we take it as such. Um, I think yeah. I, I, I want to say something about uh, apocalypse, like just um, uh, because I, you're absolutely correct. It does mean this uh, revealing, and one of, the, one of the ways to prove to the doubters that, um, that Western society, as it's popularly conceived, um, is uh, very Christian is that we all have a notion of what an apocalypse is. Like we all, whether you've been raised Christian or not, whether you've read, read the book of uh, Daniel or the book of Revelation, the, the apocalypse of John, um, most people haven't read those texts. Um, you know, most people aren't, uh, even, even Christians haven't necessarily read those texts, but they've been preached those texts. We have seen a billion variation of those texts in uh, zombie, horror, <laughs> television show, vampire, <laughs> um, every single type of supernatural necessarily and or end of the world show has been informed by these narratives. So to me, because as a, someone who's into religion and popular culture, I don't actually see a difference. You know, to me, there's no real difference between a theological interpretation and The Walking Dead. Like I, right. but um, I'm certainly, I'm sure there are scholars of all kinds that would contest that comparison. Clutching but to pearls. me, that just shows like the data. But what, what I, my broader point about the notion of apocalypse is that we've all absorbed these ideas, whether they come from our popular content or they come from a text which are, which are themselves come from uh, this ancient type of literature um, I think it's informed, like the biblical texts uh, reflect other texts that are just not as well known. Uh, we, societies have always conceived of their own demise in different ways. And when societies have nor- narratives about their own demise, it's based on the fears, right? Like the monstrous often represents our anxieties and our xenophobia and our different types of phobias. And the apocalypse represents, oh, this unknown as you're saying, this uncertainty, like we, we don't know what's going to happen if this system that we know, as flawed as it is, is collapsing. You know, we hope it's for something better, but to hold on to that kind of thing is. And then, and then the infinite variations of how people respond to this notion that if you are deeply religious, maybe you view it as God's wrath. Uh, if you are the Satanist, maybe you're viewing it as well, the herd's going to do what the herd's going to do, and I'm just going to try to protect my shit and do the fucking best I can. Holy shit, the chips are down. Like, there's different ways, but we're still responding to a notion of apocalypse. And within a capitalist society, um, like, you know, even Canada, even though we have, 
you know, uh, we have infrastructure, social uh, infrastructure. You know, it's not as if we're devoid of the questions about the economy. And every time it's uh, we talk about reopening, it's for economic reasons. You know, if, they, if those didn't exist, they would just shut them down and pay us all a universal basic income and wait till a vaccine and, you know, suggest protocols. So, so obviously we're all living in a capitalist society. And if, because of this, it crumbles, no matter what, we have a fear. So it feels like an apocalypse because the very system that you have known to be true, that has, you understand how to navigate more or less, at least to stay alive, is collapsing. It produces fear and anxiety in all kinds of different ways. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that the concept of an apocalypse is embedded in us. Mm-hmm. It's revealing our anxieties. The system is is failing, and we often every image that we've heard or ever seen from every TV video show or even preacher on a pulpit of when the apocalypse is involves lots of death and destruction. So, mm-hmm. one that normalizes it, I think, for some people. Oh, we just expect when when the shit goes down for people to die, and it also maybe then makes us fear more. Like maybe like. Maybe there's different ways to perceive of what a changing is. Maybe it doesn't have to be so fearful. Yes, um, if this, if it has exposed cracks in this particular system and there's lots of fear and in this, you know, liminal stage. My idealist notion, like when I think of my more, like if I had the best outcome, it would be <laughs> governments then saying like, oh, well, the academia is collapsing. Um, let's go to the worst treated and ask them what they would have needed. And yep. just like your your video conferencing talking about self-care where <laughs> they they have to meet a particular standard, but then the companies keep encouraging them to self-care, universities do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They don't, mm-hmm. I, I'm willing to bet all the money I don't have <laughs> um, <laughs> that if you just paid grad students, PhD students fairly, and contingent faculty uh, with a regular salary and they got vacations and they had benefits and you did that all across the industry, all of those problems that so-called are required for the individual to take on, don't feel so stressed, don't feel, you know, like where, where I'm trying to fight off my anxiety and not have a heart attack or feel suicidal, which my colleagues have all done, mm-hmm. you know, it's no one ever turns it back to the university and says, hey, well, Maybe they had a heart attack because, you know, like they made seven grand the year before and they were trying to feed their family. And you looked at them and said, ah, you know, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe when they said, hey, you know what, I, I, I have to teach all these courses and write these texts and do all this free labor. And I, you know, my marriage is suffering um, instead of you saying, hey, maybe you should relax a little bit, take some time, do whatever you want. You said, we're going to kick you out and you're going to waste all the years that you've spent here and you won't get your degree. Like maybe, <laughs> yeah. like in my idealist versions of how we reinvent institutions that fail us, and because I know academia, that's how I reimagine it. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I don't. Uh, but if we are asked or tasked as, uh, Doc, you say, to imagine what we would want to do if I now have to consider, okay, you know what, academia is probably not going to be my thing, but I also do have these talents. And maybe there's other ways to 
think about these ideas and apply these ideas, whether it's explaining what an apo- why we're feeling like an apocalypse in terms of religious ter- ways, you know, in terms of the broader narratives that inform us, you know, maybe there's a place for me to work with people that these ideas are useful. And I don't mm. care if that happens, you know, writing a script in Hollywood or informing policy for the government or administration. Like I'm, I'm, I'm open to anything, yeah. but I do like this idea in my ideal picture is that it makes money. I'm valued for it. Like it's a decent salary. I can pay my shit. <laughs> I can pay my loans. I can take care of my mom. I don't need massive amounts of cash, but I do want to be compensated like an adult living in the world, you know, that mm. needs. And that's my hope that there's, that there's opportunities at some point soon when we emerge from this, you know, dumpster fire cocoon that we're all in. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I try to, I, I don't know. Like, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if that's possible. Like I, like, uh, like everyone else we're like, is that, I don't have a specific job in mind. Mm-hmm. So I try to at least imagine the ideas that I want to be working with first. I want to be working with the ideas that I know how to put together. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be able to identify patterns and find solutions to things. And that type of work excites me. I don't really care that much. I'm not invested in any particular one. I also would like to be a bitch on Twitter and not get fired. Like that's <laughs> yes. Yeah, can we that's the, that's the dream. That's can the we dream. disconnect our social media from our professional lives? I mean, we can have a personal life and a professional life. Yeah. They don't have to be connected. I hate it when people connect the two. And we're increasing oh, yeah. right now with social media, we are. Mm-hmm. And I sort of resisted that. Like I'm deliberately a little bit abrasive on Twitter because <laughs> I kind of want to challenge this notion. Like I I, I, I understand that, that maybe then I may be rubbing some people the wrong way. And I don't try to be aggressive or insulting. I just mean I want to be a little bit more honest, a little bit more of myself the way I would address, you know, um, uh, my friends, even though it's a public forum. But like I, I, if I went online in the 90s and I developed a particular online voice that started in BBS forums, um, then... It translates to Twitter. And even though Twitter is a new type of medium, I still have that voice where I feel like I'm only talking to people that share interests. Yeah. And I know yeah. it's not. Twitter is fucking public as shit. But mentally, I still conceive of my, my digital footprint as, well, let me address the people that do get it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, and I'm not talking, to, this is, I'm not, in the, I'm only required to be a teacher in the classroom or when I'm interacting with students. And I will be, the most professional I'm able to be uh, because I've been trained for it and it's part of my personality and part of being a good educator is making your students feel comfortable with you and never centering your own issues unless it's a, you know, there's just, I want to be able to say how, hey, academics get really depressed on Twitter. Like, let's talk about this and not have it affect me personally in academia, which it probably would. And so like, to me, when I imagine how we can behave online in the new world is, as you say, Adam, maybe there's a way to, we all collectively agree to sequester certain things. Hey, my, my behavior at work is my behavior at work. Judge that. Yeah. And my right. behavior on Twitter is not terrible, 
but it is more honest about what I'm going through. And, you know, deal. Maybe that's your problem. Don't look at it. You don't like it. Don't fucking read it. What the fuck? You know? It's a choice. Absolutely. Well, and, and I think what, that we need to... Uh, I've complained that the word professionalism kind of gets thrown around and it too often is code for you're not being uh, white, uh, straight, cis, able-bodied and middle class in your conduct, uh, but we can't say that directly, so we just lump everything under the you're not being professional. Uh, and it's really a shame that the word gets abused in that way. And really, professionalism should be, are you ethical? And do you follow through on your responsibilities? And do you bring, and, oh, here, I don't even want to use that word, because that, that word is then imbued with a lot of baggage. But uh, do you honor your profession and do it ethically and well and competently, is I think the, the, the North Star. So I'm someone where uh, I've just decided to be weird uh, while being ethical and competent what I do. I've carved out a fairly unique clinical niche that I didn't expect myself going into. Uh, and I would say several of my clients have picked me because I'm an oddball weirdo, because they feel more safe with me than they feel with the tools who present as very professional together and normal, like they're right mm, down the center of the Gaussian curve. So they're safe in that respect. But if you belong to various minority groups or you're marginal or fringe, the person who falls at the center of that Gaussian curve can be very frightening uh, and unpleasant because they've weaponized uh, their normalcy against you. And they've often tried to make you conform to this narrow vision of normalcy. Hmm. So I've attempted to sort of turn my weirdness as a person into a strength while still hopefully uh, doing right by my profession and uh, honoring it at the end of the day. Yeah. But it required creativity on my part, uh, and it required me coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to get in through a lot of the standard doors, and a lot of the standard doors got slammed in my face because uh, I'm atypical, and... Uh, that's fine. Uh, so I had to learn to not knock down doors uh, that uh, were being slammed in my face. Uh, don't don't belong to a club that wasn't going to have me as a member. Right. Um, we are nearing uh, two hours here. So I want to yeah. <laughs> wind down this conversation if we can. Um, and maybe because, you know, I titled it as coping in quarantine, we can each give one or two or three mechanisms that we have personally used in order to cope. Um, and it's okay if we repeat something that we've already said, but just as a sort of closing commentary on, you know, what may help viewers or other listeners uh, after this live stream on how to deal with this quarantine and how even though it's opening, we still have some anxieties and fears about it opening because no matter what state we find ourselves in, that becomes normal to us. Um, no matter whether it was abnormal before we got into it. So we are in a quarantine. How are you? In, I'm going to start with you, Simone. How are, how are you personally dealing with this one or three uh, techniques that have helped you? What do you think? Uh, sure. So there's been an interesting um, thing that I have been doing um, is that I uh, lie down on my bed uh, listening to music. And I know that doesn't seem like that you know, uh, like a coping mechanism, but I was never a teenager that did that. 
And so I have these real, like, and I'm living with my mom again. So I have these real teenage moments where I'm just like, I don't want to hear you because um, we're living in a uh, 590 square foot apartment with two rooms. And we sleep uh, 10 feet from each other separated (laughs) by a curtain. You're a hero. uh, I can't wait to move out because then I could like masturbate before going to bed like a fucking adult. I can't do that right now, but whatever. Things will get better. <laughs> Masturbation um, is at the end of the tunnel. Right? And so, but I, but even then, like just lying down. But the hymen will not be liminal for long. That's right. But like listening to music all night long, like, uh, and all different kinds. And I've, um, uh, so there's been actually also this musical journey. Um, because I was sick for so long, um, uh, one of the effects of the thyroid disease is you have cognitive problems and you're, you get foggy and um, with its ensuing depression meant that for you know a good two years there in my most ill state, um, my, I describe it obviously in like these metaphorical, not literal terms. I'm sure there's clinical terms for it, but the story that I try to convey to people is my consciousness took a little trip and it, it you know, became uh, bodiless and went into the earth, absorbed in the earth, down to the earth core, Whoa. lived somewhere in the deep, deep ocean where no light <laughs> is, um, but close enough that uh, you start to get a bit more warmth so it could actually live. So passed through the freezing water into a little bit more, and it lived there for a while. And my body just performed uh, functions uh, for a couple of years. Yep. Okay, I can eat and I can sleep and I didn't do much else. And I didn't feel a lot of emotions because I was quite numb. And in uh, whether, and I've had a lot of um, uh, this past year, especially thinking about like, well, is it a, you know, a, a psychological condition or a physical one? And my ultimate answer is like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like if my thyroid isn't working and it causes depression, it, and they go like this, it's still fucking, your body feels like shit and you have depression. So you have to treat them both. And, um, one of the things that when I lie in bed and listen to music is because I now enjoy music again this past year and going to the gym and and uh, almost like re-experiencing things that I liked mm-hmm. and also catching up. Like I like uh, I grew up on hip hop in the 90s and loved it, like just loved it, like absorbed it, like, oh, fuck, what the fuck is this? And just mm, wanted to, <laughs> you know, inhale it and... When I entered grad school, because uh, and I was slowly actually, I didn't know it at the time, but um, developing this condition, I I stopped listening to music. So I almost feel like I missed a decade of hip hop. But it also means now that I'm like re-listening to it, I'm like, oh shit, you know, like <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff out there, and there's all kinds of ways that I can find new artists and listen to their music uh, in ways that the, our current uh, internet system and, and media allows. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it's a simple thing, lying in bed listening to music, but I enjoy it in a very different way. And when I feel more physically active, I put my headphones on and I tell my mom, <laughs> so we're going to, so the kitchen is in a separate room. There's no door, but it's like a separate room. Yeah. And like when she says, I'm going to watch a movie and she puts her headphones on, I go in the kitchen and I put my headphones on and I shut off all the lights and I fucking dance like all night. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and like I sweat and because no one's watching and it's in the dark. Like it's, it's not like 
it's not like club moves where you're trying to be cool. It's yeah. like the wild out doesn't fucking matter. And yeah. it's been so cathartic. Like I keep thinking of uh, Magistra Nadramia's, there was a, an interview where she just sort of as an offhand comment, like, oh, a successful working like ritual, you know, is the cathartic experience. And that could just mean, you know, singing into your hairbrush. And yep. every time I do that, I think of, that I was like, yeah, of course. Like, fuck, it's been a tense week. I've been at my desk all day with very exacting detail, trying to get this thing right as right as I can. And I need an outlet, and I don't have it. Um, fucking, I'm just gonna sweat. <laughs> and um, the the third thing that I want to say is, I tried weed. It's it's legal here. It's legal here. Mm -hmm. And with my anxiety, uh, it, that did not work. So. <laughs> I... <laughs> I am not one of those people that can smoke a joint with anxiety and feel good. Like yeah. that, you know. Like if I'm if I'm chill and I'm feeling good, great, that's fine. But um, oh. so I just I just want to warn people: it may not be as effective. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, one fourth thing in this new world, I'm just gonna say I'm going to have a lot of difficulty going back to wearing a bra every day. Like, that's gonna be tough. Yep. That is mm. Preach, oh, sister. Don't I know it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's something I've never had to deal with. <laughs> that's gotta be a pain in the ass. For sure. Yeah, that is a that is an excellent point. So I think for me, uh one of the biggest things I have to contend with daily is Zoom fatigue, which actually is a legitimate real thing. Uh your brain does not enjoy uh, processing uh, people on tiny screens whose reactions are muted or delayed. Mm -hmm. uh, it sends a lot of mixed messages, and even a second delay basically translates to your brain as rejection or disapproval. Uh, and looking at your own face causes can cause a lot of people anxiety. So Zoom fatigue is a real phenomenon. Uh, so I find that after probably about three or four Zoom sessions with clients or groups, my brain feels pretty tired. So I do what I gotta do and then I either take time out to write if I have spoons to do that, uh, or I watch something on Netflix, I browse the internet. Uh, music is also my big, big recharge of I just, uh, open my huge YouTube playlist and listen to music and zone out and daydream. Uh, and I've also gotten back into playing video games occasionally, which gets me into that nice middle ground of I'm engaged but also relaxed. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing to cope, and I would just advise people to uh, hang in there, realize that they are not alone, mm -hmm. uh, be willing to reach out. Simony was exactly correct that if you wouldn't suppress your sex drive, why are you denying your grief or your depression or your anger or your anxiety? Uh, it's all in your head, yes, but it, your head is real. Uh, your brain is real. Uh, it's electrified meat. It's a physical object. So your emotions uh, are perfectly valid. So accept them, uh, process them, uh, acknowledge them and then after that decide what you're going to do with them and I would advise people to name specifically what's bothering you or upsetting you uh, ask yourself how uh, realistic uh, 
or healthy or uh, practical is this fear that I have? And then assuming that it is, what are maybe five things that I can conceivably do to mitigate the situation that I fear or hate or that's making me anxious? What are five steps I, I could conceivably take uh, to confront or cope with the situation? And I'd also advise people to break things down into tinier bites. Uh, taking things as a whole is overwhelming. So as much as possible, when you have to confront any task, goal, or situation, break it down into objectives, break the objectives down into steps, break the steps down into bites, and then you're, I think you're allowed to even sort those uh, by the day. So say, today I will uh, handle just this one thing, and I will put it on my calendar, and that's going to be my objective for today, and I will meet this step, and then when I meet it, I will reward myself and celebrate, and then tomorrow I will do the next thing, and then I will do the next thing. And sometimes we have to work back from time-sensitive goals. So if you need to do that, figure out where the goal is and then work backwards but yeah. take things in small incremental bites and name the thing that's worrying you as much as possible and be concrete and uh, assess the accuracy and helpfulness of your thoughts fears and assumptions is is i guess my basic advice in a nutshell mm -hmm. wow um i think these are all fantastic suggestions uh i would just tack on two that have helped me personally. Um, and that's every weekday morning at 5.30, I wake up and I exercise. Whether it's uh, strength training or running, I always do it at 5.30 in the morning, every single weekday, no matter what, no fail. Because it sets up not only a pattern that I can look forward to, or not look forward to as it were, but... Uh, it helps, of course, condition your body, and that helps your immune system, and that helps uh, just you, your general sense of well-being mentally. Um, and then the other part is to ensure that you still have the normalcy of the work week. For me, that helps a lot because mm -hmm. I'm a very nine-to-five guy. Um, I've worked my entire professional life with the nine to five spectrum. When I am off, I am off. There is a professional atom and then there is a personal atom and they do not mix. And so when I am on the clock, I have my computer set up for work. It is a specifically a work computer at nine o'clock. I'm ready to go at work. I've already showered and changed for the day and brushed my teeth and ate my breakfast. And I'm ready just to work. And as soon as five o'clock hits, I break it all down. I put it away and I am back into normal mode, no matter whether they're sending emails to me or not, because they're not segmenting life as if it were a normal non-quarantine environment. I do. And that helps me cope. And it helps me break up what the days are, what the week is. And it allows me those opportunities to then have normalcy once the clock runs down into personal time. So that's just something that's helped me a little bit. Um, I would like to say uh, thank you so much, ladies. Um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, two hours is a lot to ask of anyone, um, but I genuinely appreciate uh, what you've brought to this discussion, of course, um, but also just your personalities and your anecdotes and you know the general positivity that both of you uh, project, I think is really important uh, as well. So thank you both so very much for joining me on this conversation. It's been a pleasure and uh, thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, as always. <laughs> well, I would also like to thank the audience for kicking it with us for two hours. I mean, that's a lot to ask of anyone in today's bite-sized 15-minute or two-minute increment, you know, consuming uh, habits. Uh, you guys mean a lot, of course, not just because you contribute to the conversation, but also you help shape how it comes out. And I know we didn't refer to your comments directly a lot in this conversation, but we were looking over at your comments and that was informing the direction in which we were going. Um, thank you guys so much for your time and attention. And if you support this show, if you'd like to see more, of course, you can always subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can sign up to the email list and get informed on uh, what we're going to be talking about, who we're going to be talking with and when that's going to happen. So thank you all so much. And until next time, until we can speak of the devil again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Bye. 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 <laughs>